Groupon is laying off another 500 workers. And I'll talk with Steve Daniels, who covers banking for Cranes, about the planned departure of Wintrust CEO. He liked to zig when others zag, which is a rare, a rare quality in the banking industry. It's a very lemming-like business, and Ed Weimer was uh, not a lemming ever. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Cranes Daily Gist for Wednesday, February 1st. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. The CEO of Wintrust Financial will step down at the end of April in what the bank said is a planned transition. To discuss it, Cranes reporter Steve Daniels joins me now. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So what can you tell me about this leadership transition happening at Wintrust? Yes, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, the bank was um, co-founded by Ed Weimer, who we're talking about here, uh, in 1991. So he's uh, in one way, shape, or form been leading the bank ever since then. He formally became CEO in the late 90s, uh, but it's really been his show uh, until now. And this is a big deal. It's the banking version of a tech founder stepping off, and and he will be doing so at the end of April. Tim Crane, who they've groomed, a veteran Chicago banker, has been around for decades. He's 61 himself. Uh, he was a veteran of uh, Harris Bank before joining Wintrust and um, and will be the CEO beginning in April. Ed Waymer will become executive chairman and has a deal to stick around for at least three years in, in sort of an ambassador-type role. And you've written a little bit about Waymer's kind of early ambition and, and his early strategy when he co-founded the bank and the track that he took to do that. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, Wintrust was begun. Uh, they, they have a famous story they tell over and over again over a card table and beers, drinking old styles, and he and his partner, Howard Adams, you know, Ed Waymer was a was an accountant, and he audited uh, financials of banks, among other companies, and decided he would, he liked the business and would like to do it himself instead of just counting beans. So he and Howard began Wintrust in Lake Forest as sort of an alternative to the big banks who were growing at the time, they were really the beginnings of the banking colossus uh, phenomenon that we now see and are used to. Uh, and that's what Wintrust was. It was it was very suburban oriented in, in generally affluent suburban communities like Lake Forest and Hinsdale. And it branched out and kind of grew uh, in an orderly way until some very unusual opportunities presented themselves to grow into the $50 billion plus bank that they are today. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about those, those opportunities, those things. Wintrust was 
kind of steadily growing into uh, kind of a nice-sized bank when um, a couple of things happened that were important. Uh, one was the sale of Bank One to J.P. Morgan Chase in 2004, Chicago's biggest bank, really our only claim to, you know, having one of the, the country's real, you know, banking giants. And uh, Chase, based in New York, Jamie Dimon, who ran it here, took essentially uh, it became a New York centric entity. Uh, still the biggest bank in Chicago today, both retail and commercial, but uh, but not anything you know as important symbolically as Bank One is. That was the first thing. Second thing was the sale of LaSalle Bank, which had leapfrogged Chase as the city's biggest business bank. So at the time was had essentially its uh, most important bank in 2007 to Bank of America, based in Charlotte. LaSalle was owned by a Dutch parent who had run into financial difficulty, really kind of presaging the financial crisis that took place the next year. And they could make a quick $20 billion selling off LaSalle, which is what they did. This was a shock to the people at LaSalle, who many of whom had been working there or in Chicago banking for 30 years or more, suddenly to become part of Bank of America, which really had little use for the way LaSalle had done business and looked at that as really a missing dot on the map for a national bank. Bank of America was a bit player in Chicago until then. So those two things opened the door for smaller banks like Wintrust private bank, uh, which the CEO then of LaSalle migrated to, took a whole bunch of bankers and quickly built up, uh, taking with him a whole bunch of customers that had been at Bank of America. Uh, MB Financial, First Midwest, these were sort of mid-sized banks that suddenly had an opportunity to grow. The second thing after those really massive disruptions to Chicago's banking market, and they really can't be overstated, was the financial crisis and the Great Recession. And that also provided opportunity for banks that weren't having to clean up massive loan messes for you know, two, three years afterwards. And the poster child for that was Wintrust. Uh, Waymer famously called it his rope-a-dope strategy after the, the boxing tactics that Muhammad Ali would use to tire out his opponents and dodging their punches until he would then go on the attack. That positioned Wintrust to come out of, you know, sort of the cleanup mode much faster than most of its rivals, take a whole bunch of business, you know, we're open for business, you can get loans here, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then secondly, what he did was he scooped up a whole bunch of small banks, some of them failed. Uh, so he, he did so uh, after regulators closed them. Many of them, you know, sort of teetering or barely hanging on. And uh, he called it his own sort of bailout fund, <laughs> his mini tarp fund. A lot of other bankers, certainly guys running banks his size, his bank size, had no use for these little deals. They didn't move the financial needle. They, they kind of thought that was a little odd. Uh, that he would spend so much time and energy doing that. But he liked to zig when others zag, which is a rare a rare quality in the banking industry. It's a very lemming-like business. And 
Ed Weimer was uh, not a lemming ever. So uh, one of his real attributes. And so those smaller deals that he was making, what was the motivation there? Was that the kind of the long game about this is how we're going to scale or what was that? It wasn't so much about scale because they were pretty small. What it, what it was about was um, expanding geographically. And also, you know, you, you would gain deposits. If, if you treated their customers well, uh, you would gain deposits that you could then use to lend uh, out money and, and make more money too. But it was, it was really more about geographic spread. And, you know, he, he had ambitions to serve every part of the Chicago market. And there's not that many banks that do that outside of the big QGs like Chase, uh, uh, Harris, Bank of America. Um, and he's one of them now. And, and, and that was, it was no small part uh, of making it that way that he bought, uh, you know, that he acquired all these little banks. What, what he used to get criticized for is like, why are you spending all the time and attention? You, you need to integrate these things, right? Because you got to integrate computer systems and things like that. And, and that wasn't his view at all. His view was it's no sweat integrating banks of this size. What's hard is integrating a really big bank that you buy where you've got to deal with cultural issues and things like that. Uh, and uh, he never bought a bank over a billion dollars, and he's proud of it. And is that kind of what led to the unique structure of kind of separately chartered banks? No, that was there before, but it, it augmented it. He's, he always believed in uh, not in consolidating his brand or even hit the bank. Uh, he, they've got 15 or so separately chartered banks so they all have to report to regulators. They all have their own presidents. They all basically are there to serve their communities, you know, and the communities are sort of not just towns, but, but a sort of geographic a mini portion of the Chicago market. And he believed fervently in that. Again, that was something that competing bankers just shook their heads at. What are you doing? It seemed expensive. You couldn't, you know, brand uh, yourself the way, you know, everybody knows who Chase is or whoever, and they see commercials. You also had, uh, you know, more expenses in terms of regulatory compliance, things like that. But that was his fervent belief was we need to be a community bank, even if at $50 billion. That's our entire culture. That's our appeal to consumers that, you know, they may not even know that Wintrust owns their bank. Um, and, you know, I'm sure more of them do today than say did 15 years ago because they have done a fair amount to, to, you know, create a brand identity for Wintrust. It's a sponsor of the Cubs and the White Sox. It has its name on the stadium for DePaul basketball. Uh, and that, that was another thing. He sort of believed that he could brand Wintrust and also have these, this, this community bank identity. And he succeeded. It's one of the things I admire about him is, again, that, that zigging when others zag, not buying into conventional wisdom, not, not that he's criticizing what a Chase does or anybody else does. He just does something different. It's a different appeal. And it's, it's been, uh, by any measure, extremely successful uh, in terms of market share. Convention doesn't seem like his thing at all. Um, there's a, a quote in your reporting about uh, when asked what, what he might say on the April 
earnings call, he said, you never know. You'll have to dial in and see, baby. Like, seems like kind of a colorful character. <laughs> oh, he's he's extremely colorful. And that we're, we'll, we'll miss him for that, for sure. I mean, he's he's one of those big personality people, kind of larger than life uh, figure. A lot of fun to talk to. Extremely smart. In addition to being colorful and kind of a, he's got a down to earth way of talking, but he's wily as can be. And, and, you know, again, this is a guy who was an accountant. He understands numbers and finances. He understands all of those levers as well or better than any banker I've ever talked to. And, and I've talked to a lot. But, but at the same time, he's got a common touch. He's been very involved in the Catholic Church. He chaired uh, Loyola Academy for many years, sort of the archdiocese go-to banker. He's just got a, a lot of different facets. You know, on those quarterly earnings calls, he would he would say some things that probably I'm not going to repeat here. <laughs> but it was but it was fun. They were they were funny. I mean, uh, you know, it, people appreciate people understood what he was talking about too. It wasn't like it was just being a goof for being a goof's sake. It was it made sense in whatever he was, he was speaking about. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's that aspect for sure. Yeah. Which is not something that happens on earnings calls often, right? Often they're, you know, very straightforward and numbers driven and you don't see a lot, you know, not a lot of laughter on earnings calls. Yeah. Or, or, or pained laughter. Right. I mean, there's a, there, 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 right. there is right. definitely the CEO who tries to be all buddy, buddy with the analysts and like, Hey, how's it, sure. uh, how's the weather and wherever you are and that kind of stuff. And that stuff, if you listen to as many earnings calls as I have over, over the time, that's just tedious and painful, but that's just not how he was at all. He was, uh, he was just, you know, it, it seemed just genuine off the cuff. Um, it wasn't like he planned these things. It's just how he talks. And he would, he would uh, talk on those earnings calls like he, uh, like he talks to uh, somebody on the phone. Uh, and sometimes it would make, you know, some of his uh, board members cringe a little bit. And, you know, but that was all okay. It was, it was who he was. He was never any, anything other than who he was. And we're sitting here talking about him as if he's in the past tense. He's going to, He's still be, going to be around. He'll be on the. He'll be on the scene. He'll be, if anything, maybe more on the scene, and and people might in Chicago might even see more of him than he did when he had to, you know, run the bank. Yeah. So, what might we expect under new leadership? I don't think we're going to expect a change of any kind. Uh, you know, at least in terms of the, the business strategy, I think you'll see a stylistic change with Tim. Tim uh, Crane is is a. Uh, not Ed Waymer in terms of his, uh, and he would be the first to admit that in terms of what his personality is like. Tim is a very good guy, very nice guy, uh, extremely capable. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, more of of what you um, would would sort of think of when you think of a guy running running a bank. Um, and uh, so, so stylistically, there will be some some change, but. A lot of the closest people to Ed Waymer will continue on, which is important. They, the continuity there, uh, they've got a very good bench and uh, they've got a very strong culture. And that none of that is changing. And the strategy, I mean, you know, I, I talked to Tim uh, yesterday, or Monday about this. And, you know, he's going to make decisions and he, and he will... 
uh, like Ed, he will be presented with opportunities that um, that he couldn't have foreseen, and he will have to make decisions about how to respond to those. And those and those will show some some change, some differences. Maybe we'll see. You know, in terms of risk appetite, things like that. But um, but in terms of you know what is Wintrust and what does Wintrust want to be? That is rock solid. Uh, that's not changing. So, and the next thing, uh, I don't know if you were going to ask this, but we should go there, is really Ed Waymer's legacy. This is the thing that really jumped out at me. I mean, you know, we talk about all of the, uh, all of his characteristics and what maybe his strongest legacy is, is he's left a bank that's based here time after time, you know, a CEO of Chicago bank that's been successful, that's grown, that's become a, you know, for lack of a better word, a player, when they, you know, believe it's time for them to uh, slow down or retire, or they just, you know, they're, they're, they don't want to work, you know, 60 hours a week, whatever it is, the exit for them is to find a buyer and the, the buyer's an out-of-town bank. They get a massive pay package. So they're, they're set for, for the rest of their lives and the rest of their descendants' lives in some cases, but Chicago loses yet another locally headquartered bank of significance. And this has just happened time and time again. It happened with private bank. It happened with MB Financial. It happened most recently with First Midwest. We already talked about uh, Bank One and LaSalle. And this is not what Ed was going to do. What the board ended up doing was paying him 12 million or agreeing to pay him $12 million over over the three years that are coming up to sort of compensate him for maybe for not going that route. Of course, the board would have had something to say about that. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, it's not what he would have made if he had decided to sell this extremely valuable bank to an out-of-town player who wants to be more of a player here. And that would have been, uh, So that's his legacies. We've, Chicago is, as a banking center uh, has lost most of its luster thanks to these these buyouts and um, really wind trust is kind of the last game in town we talk you know there's northern trust but northern trust is not a commercial bank mainly uh, it's it's it, it, it's its own animal it's an, a very important institution here but in terms of business banking and this is a business banking town with tons and tons of middle mid-sized family-owned businesses that rely almost exclusively on banks to finance their operations. Um, it couldn't be a more critical thing in this in this town, most towns too, but this one especially. Uh, so to not have any locally-based commercial banks of size and significance would be, in my opinion, a terrible thing for Chicago. So um, he did his part. That was something that was important to him, and he did his part uh, to make sure that that didn't happen on his watch. So, you know, to me, that's his, that's his biggest legacy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate you stopping by to talk it through today. Happy to do it. Coming up, the FAA adds safeguards to the U.S. flight system to prevent new outages. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
This coming February, Crane's Chicago business relaunches its executive education program in leadership development, custom designed to hone the leadership skills of executives across the Chicagoland area. We're pleased to bring you new programming from Crane's Leadership Academy designed and taught by renowned faculty from Chicago Booth School of Business. The program will benefit mid and senior level executives from the Chicagoland area across various sectors and industries who seek to heighten their leadership skills for success during these uncertain times. Sessions will be held at the Gleacher Center in downtown Chicago from February 24th through March 24th, 2023, every Friday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. A certificate of completion from Chicago Booth and Cranes will be provided. For questions about the program, visit cranesacademy.com or email cranesacademy at crane.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Groupon is laying off another 500 workers. The cutbacks come less than six months after the online deals company previously said it would cut 500 jobs. Crane's John Pletz reported that the company declined to detail where the new layoffs will be made or what caused the newest cutbacks, which it called, quote, the second phase of a multi-phase restructuring plan that began last year. The company said in a securities filing that the cuts will be made, quote, globally, with the majority of these reductions expected to occur by the end of the second quarter of 2023. Groupon had about 2,750 workers at the last round of layoffs, down from almost 6,500 workers before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. After the last round of cutbacks, Groupon said it would have about 800 workers in Illinois. Pletz noted in reporting that the company's business of providing discounts at local merchants was hit hard by the pandemic-related public health and safety measures. In the most recently reported quarter, Groupon's revenue was down 33 percent from the same period a year prior. McDonald's shares slipped after the company's fourth quarter operating margin and its projection for 2023 both fell short of analysts' estimates. The measure of profitability came in at 43.6% for the most recent quarter, below the average estimate of 45.5% compiled by Bloomberg. Looking ahead, the fast food giant expects its operating margin to be about 45% in 2023, below the consensus estimate of 46.5%. Bloomberg also reported that McDonald's reported fourth quarter sales that exceeded expectations as consumers showed their ability to pay higher prices for fast food despite high inflation and economic uncertainty. Comparable sales rose 12.6% in the quarter ended December 31st, and that surpassed the average estimate for 8% growth compiled by Bloomberg. Same store sales topped projections in all of its segments, including the U.S. and international licensed markets. The Chicago-based company also reported a 5% increase in guest counts in 2022, a metric that McDonald's has struggled to move in past years. The company said the measure was boosted by a continued push for digital sales and delivery via its My Rewards loyalty program and due to successful U.S. marketing pushes such as the Cactus Plant Flea Market promotion and the McRib. CEO Chris Kamzinski said he expects, quote, short-term inflationary pressures to continue in 2023, but nonetheless is, quote, highly confident in a revamped operational plan that includes a greater focus on opening new locations, he said. Earlier this month, the company also said it was trimming corporate jobs as part of its new strategy. 
Caterpillar's ongoing battle with rising manufacturing costs has taken its toll, with the equipment maker posting lower-than-expected quarterly profit for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Caterpillar is one of the world's biggest producers of heavy machinery, and as Bloomberg noted in reporting, sales of the company offer a good reflection of the overall health of the real economy. The company's performance can be an indicator for the broader economy since its machinery is key for the construction, mining, and energy sectors across every continent. Caterpillar said Tuesday it had adjusted fourth quarter earnings of 386 a share, missing the 397 per share estimate of analysts pulled by Bloomberg for the first time in 11 quarters. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that the earnings come as economic uncertainty from the Americas to Europe and Asia leave investors unsure as to whether the biggest economies are on the brink of recession. The company said Caterpillar's earnings in the quarter were impacted by higher manufacturing expenses driven by rising raw material costs as well as a goodwill impairment charge tied to its locomotive business. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that Caterpillar has grappled with rising freight and material costs along with global supply chain troubles that have posed large hurdles to the producer since the start of the pandemic, impacting profit margins. The company announced in June that it would relocate its headquarters from Deerfield to Irving, Texas. And though the headquarters relocated, the company still employs thousands of people at several locations across Illinois, including Peoria, Aurora, East Peoria, Pontiac, and Mossville. The FAA told lawmakers that the U.S. government has added new protections to the aviation notice system that led to thousands of disruptions earlier this month in an attempt to prevent such failures in the future. Reuters first reported that the FAA said in a letter to House lawmakers dated Friday and released by the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee on Monday that a federal manager must now be present anytime a contractor works with the software system and any changes to the data will be held back an hour before going into the backup systems. As discussed in a previous episode of the podcast, the FAA said that the Notice to Air Missions, or NOTAM, system failed on January 11th, forcing thousands of flight delays and cancellations after unidentified federal contract workers accidentally deleted a data file. The agency was forced to halt all departures for more than 90 minutes because pilots are required to check the latest safety notices before departing. As also reported by Bloomberg, the FAA also told lawmakers last week that the employees of the contractor, Spatial Front, have been barred from working on the system. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Steve Daniels. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.